Well, once again, uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Clay Thompson, one of the pastors here at the well. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, if y'all are like, who is that? It's all right. Don't worry about it. All right. Somebody said I'm more like Ben Simmons because I ain't got a jump shot. I beat you at men's retreat, though, dog. <laughs> uh, hey, welcome. Uh, it is good to be here with you all this morning. Hey, I love our family, for real. Even silly things like that. I love being able to be together uh, as a family. And so, man, it's just encouraging to be here uh, this morning. We are starting a new series. You ready? Yeah. I am pumped because the book of Ruth is fire, y'all. And so I'm excited just to dive into this at large, relationships, romance, and redemption. And so we expect to do a lot more wedding ceremonies next year because of that one right there. But before we get into that, we're going to dive into the intro of Ruth. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Ruth chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. Uh, the usher is going to come forward now. If you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand, and uh, they would love to give you one. If you do not own a Bible, would you please take and keep that? That's a, our gift to you. We want you to have the Word. You can also follow along on your phone uh, on the Version app, or you can type this into your URL. There's uh, you know notes, and the Scripture will be on there. And uh, I say this every week because I mean it. Uh, I want your eyes on the word, friends. I truly do believe that God wants to communicate to us in a very real way, and the most consistent way that he speaks to us is in and through the word. And so there are times during worship or during preaching where the Lord may want to illuminate something else from the text at large, and we want you to see that and to see, man, we're not making this up, right? Like, we really believe these are the words of God to our heart, and so you can follow along in that way, all right? A little bit of background on Ruth so we know what's happening before we dive into this text at large. This uh, sermon series and the story at large mainly focuses on Ruth, uh, but it also kind of sub-themes into uh, Boaz and also uh, Naomi. Boaz will be Ruth's soon-to-be husband, and Naomi is her mother-in-law. And so I would actually encourage you, if you want something to read uh, right now in your devotional time, that you would actually read the book of Ruth. Uh, I think it's really powerful, and it will really aid in a lot of ways to the sermon, as you know, the story at large, and even to our community groups as we discuss this story. It will help aid us in a lot of ways. But Ruth was highlighting the simple family uh, a couple of generations before the mighty, mighty King David. This actually then marries well with our last sermon series, Unsung Heroes, because in a very real way, Ruth is an unsung hero. Now, we may know about her in our circles because uh, there is a book of the Bible called Ruth. And so if we know the books of the Bible, she's not very unsung to us. But when we're entering into this story, she is, by all intent and purposes, uh, nearly absent. And she is, in a lot of ways, an unsung hero. But through her faithfulness to God and to what God is calling her to do, she gets written into the story of God and becomes the future grandmother of King David, which means I mean, she's the future grandmother of Jesus Christ himself. And so her faithfulness, even though she may not be known or she's even a non-Israelite, she is a Moabite, but her faithfulness uh, wrote her into the story of God and God blessed her mightily in and through that. And so today what we'll be doing is we'll be doing a ton of background work uh, in this uh, series at large and we'll be covering a lot today, only a couple of verses though, so we can kind of have a context and a picture at large for what God is doing in and through this book. But we'll also be focusing on the theme uh, of suffering and how God is present in the midst of suffering. Before we see redemption, before we see romance even, before we even see true relationship, we get thrust into the story of a time of suffering. And a lot of us may be in the middle of a season of suffering. And so this is very, very uh, prevalent and present uh, for us and in our lives. And so Ruth chapter one is where we're going to be. 
And we're going to pick it up here uh, right at the start in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his son, his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, there's tons of work to actually do even in those two verses because the author is very, very, very poetic, actually, and is stating a lot of things that may not be naturally uh, understandable to us, but he's doing it in a very beautiful, both theological, which just means like spiritual, and also poetic way. Firstly, there's a date stamp in here. It says, in the time of the judges, okay? Now, this isn't merely a date stamp. It's not like saying four score and seven years ago, right? There was a wee little man from the town of Bethlehem. Him. That rhymed and that was pretty good, right? But that's not what it's saying, okay? Uh, there are actually theological implications of this. The days of the judges were, in a lot of ways, be like us saying, hey, in the time of the wild, wild west, right? And not like Will Smith's wild, wild west either, right? Like the real wild, wild west, okay? It's saying, hey, there is this chaotic time that they are in. In fact, if you look at the verse that precedes Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, is Judges chapter 21, verse 5. And the way the book of Judges ends, before we get into Ruth, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They were making up their own law. They were establishing their own order, right? They were like, nah, whatever, I do what I want right? This is what they were thinking and how they were acting. And so this immediately becomes prevalent for us because we live in a time that's a lot like that, do we not? Where everybody kind of does what's right in their own eyes. And there's no real care for God or what he says or for the law of the Lord, the scriptures. We don't believe that they are powerful or, or uh, they're just kind of old fairy tales. They don't have meaning in our life. Or in a lot of ways, there's even a disregard for, at times, the law of the land or whatever it may be. And everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's hard for us to be believers in the midst of that and to live faithfully to our God often because when people are doing what is right in their own eyes and when we are trying to submit to God, there's even... And, uh, disdain or scorn even at times for that. And this is what Ruth and the story of Ruth is set in in a lot of ways. Everyone does what's right. They have a hard time listening to God following his law. Now, once again, this is not just a statement, but it says there was a famine in the land. This is likely because of Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God promises that if they obey him and they follow him, there will be blessing for their obedience. But if they disobey him and they run away from God, then there's going to be famine in the land. Israel is doing whatever they want. There's no one that is kind of actively trying to guide them toward God. There's no prophet. There's no king in the land at the time. There's not even a faithful priest. And so people are just doing whatever they want to do. And so they're rejecting him. And in this rejection, it is actually bringing pain, not just to their lives, but to the land at large holistically. When we reject God and when we do what is right in our own eyes, it may indeed, friends, bring temporary pleasure, but we can be assured that it will always bring pain on the back end. 
This is what we are seeing. A consistent rejection of God over and over throughout the years is bringing more and more pain into this country at large until there's really no more thought of God in a lot of ways. And we can be assured of this family that God is trying to use the famine in a way to actually turn their hearts back toward God. For that's what Deuteronomy 28 promises, that God's famine is not like a spanking in a way where he is just punishing them. But in reality, he's trying to reveal to them what's actually going on in their hearts and turn their hearts back toward God. The physical realities of a famine are actually introducing the spiritual realities of what's happening in their hearts. And this is true throughout the book at large. The physical reality as before us, the author's trying to actually show us a spiritual reality underneath it all. One important point that we need to think through right away is that our sin does not just hurt us in the long run, but it actually hurts those around us in the long run as well. There is no sin that is private sin, for all sin will have negative consequence to the people around at large. You think about many people here in Israel at the time, they may have been trying to be faithful to God, but because the nation at large was rejecting God, then the nation at large was hit with a famine, including some of the faithful people that are in the midst of it. Friends, your sin does not just affect you, but it actually affects everyone around you. You say, well, no one knows about it. Well, you may not have as much intimacy with God, and God may be trying to use you to build up and encourage my life. But because you're not connecting deeply with God now, there's an inability for you to even minister into my life. And so even if there's not consequence or a negative ramification or repercussion, it's not a sin against someone else, it still impacts us all. For we need each other to be building each other up. And we are built up most when we are closely connected to God. And here we see a group of people that aren't very closely connected. We get introduced to a family in the middle of the situation. In fact, the man from Bethlehem, Elimelech, chose to go to a foreign land to find food. The ironic thing is that the Hebrew word for Bethlehem literally translates into house of bread. And so even in the house of bread, there was no bread in the house. There's a famine in the land, so much so that it is negatively affecting this very fertile area, which is what Bethlehem was. And so Elimelech travels into the country of Moab looking for food. Now, this is once again hard to understand without understanding the Old Testament and the context for it at large. But this was a very, very grave mistake that Elimelech did. For God had promised Israel that he would meet with them in the land of Israel. This is where God's presence would dwell. This is where God's blessing would come. This is where you would meet and interact with God. And so Elimelech choosing to go to a foreign land and to look for food isn't just him uh, trying to fulfill some physical hunger, but in a very real way, it is him rejecting the promises of God. You tracking with that? And so it'd be really similar to uh, if we said, you know what, I'm done with church. I'm not going to church anymore. I'm through with this. You may not necessarily be rejecting God, but God made it very clear that his presence dwells amongst his people as they gather together. And so as you are leaving the community of the church and the community of saints and people that are able to speak truth and build you up in love in a very real way, you may be leaving that close connection, the intimacy that God longs to have with you. And so Elimelech may not be a, a non-believer. He may believe in God, but in a very real way, he's kind of rejecting God and choosing to go his own way. And so in a very real way, we see him kind of leaving God, in a sense. It's him saying that he didn't trust God anymore. He doesn't trust God to provide. There's a famine in the land, and instead he runs off and goes somewhere else. See, God often would bring that famine, Deuteronomy 28 would tell us, to test their faith and to show people what their faith was really made out of, which for Elimelech, it was nothing. 
His faith was absent. As trouble came, his knee-jerk reaction, rather than trust God and trust in the promises of God, was to trust himself and become his own God. And rather than turning toward God and saying, hey, God, we need you. What's going on? Can we, can we have some relief here, right? He just utterly goes his own way, and he begins to look for himself in uh, his own provision in a lot of ways. I wonder how many of us can relate with that, right? Where when trouble hits, instead of running toward God, we run from God. And instead of looking toward him and asking him who he is and what he's doing, we just kind of try to figure it out ourselves. This was Elimelech's knee-jerk reaction was to try to figure it out himself, to be his own king in a way, which is ironic because Elimelech's very name means my God is king. And so he had a name that proclaimed the reality of what Israel was supposed to live in and yet had actions that revealed the exact opposite about his heart. He didn't believe my God is king. He believed I am king. And I wonder once again how many of us can relate. For maybe you've been hesitant to even come into church because there's somebody that bears the name of Christian but has no actions that reveal the reality that they believe that in their hearts. And maybe you got hurt or burned by those very people. Maybe the reason that you have been hesitant toward even coming close to God is because somebody proclaimed with their name, I am a follower of Christ and I believe in him and follow his ways, but lived out with their, their actions the exact opposite. And this is what Elimelech does. He proclaims with his name, my God is king, but he even lives out the exact opposite in his life. When there's no provision, he runs somewhere else rather than trusting the promises of God. He is the king of his own heart. He does what is right in his own eyes. And there's a possibility that we can relate. Because not only have some of us been hurt by those people, but maybe we are tempted to be those people. We bear the name of Christian, and yet our lives don't really look like we follow Jesus at all. There's no picking up our cross. There's no suffering. There's no following him in a lot of ways. And so this is the reality that we get thrust into right away. This man that bears the name but not the character of what it means to follow Christ. And so like Elimelech, God also calls us to trust in him and to follow him. But instead, Elimelech, he tries and runs and he flees really on the road to nowhere is what even this sermon title is called, The Road to Nowhere. He's trying to find a way, right? He's running off, but that way is really leading him to nothing, right? He's running off and kind of doing his own thing, and he believes that the grass will be greener on the other side, which is, I know what a lot of us do, right? Hello, am I preaching to myself? That's what I do, at least, right? I feel like this, and so maybe you're not as convicted as I was by this text, but your boy be running, ready to run, right? That's why we even sing the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love. I love my God with all of my heart, and yet my flesh so often tells me that I am the king of my own heart. And when trials and temptation comes, I find the proclivity to run from God rather than to God. And I begin to have a knee-jerk reaction, just like Elimelech, to trust myself and to try to build up my own kingdom in a way. And this is the propensity, I believe, of most of us. I mean, maybe you're just like holy, you're killing it, all right? I'll let you disciple me, okay? But I think in a lot of ways, we can relate to Elimelech, right? We may bear the name, but act totally different, or we may be running from God holistically at large. And so this is actually what makes Ruth's faith, which we'll look at next week, even that much more significant. For this woman believed... In God, despite the very people that she would have learned about this God from, was people who did not really represent the God of Israel's character very well. 
For Naomi was bitter and angry and not trusting God. Elimelech was gone. His sons clearly followed in his steps in a lot of ways. And yet Ruth's faith blossoms and flourishes in the midst of this, which also gives us a great little nugget, friends, that we cannot blame our lack of faith on somebody else's mistrust or or mistreating of us. We need to have our own faith for oftentimes when a Christian hurts us, we then kind of reject God at large, not realizing that that wasn't God that hurt us. That was his people that hurt us. And I just told you I'm a pretty wretched man and I'm up here preaching the word right now, right? And so sometimes we can be hurt, but Ruth didn't allow this negative experience to deter her, but rather she clung to God through that and we'll see, found the blessing and the promise of God in that very clinging. But Elimelech here is off in sin. You can even see it in his own uh, journey that he takes. For in verse 1, it says that Elimelech was sojourning there. He went to sojourn. But then in verse 2, we see that he went. And then in verse 3, we, or sorry, verse 2 again, he says that it remained. This is what sin often does in our life too. When we don't trust God, we try to figure it out and try to do our own thing. And then we run off and we choose sin because we look for food somewhere else. God's not providing the food that we need, so we'll find food somewhere else. Only to realize five years later, how did I end up in this place where I'm at right now? I mean, isn't that half the testimony examples that you heard? That was my life, right? Not trusting God in my youth and kind of running off, doing my own thing. And then five years later being like, how am I living in Moab right now? All right? And this is what happened to Elimelech. And so uh, this is our own decisions or sin, not trusting or listening to God. It, It catches us and it tries to keep us in a foreign land, keep us away from the promises of God, keep us away from the voice of God, and then turn us. And rather than realize we were the ones that ran away in the first place, it tries to turn us to become bitter against God in the first place, not realizing the whole time God was trying to woo and win their hearts back to him, as we'll see in a moment. But sin tries to deceive us, friends. It gets us to just sojourn and then to go and then to actually dwell there and then not realize how much this is hurting in the long run, making us forget about our God and who he is in our lives. Now, the reason that I believe this happens, that we find ourselves in those places, because following God is actually really, really hard, friends, right? Like sometimes we can paint the Christian life like it's like dancing through the lilies and like petting puppy dogs, right? That's not always what it's like to follow Christ. I mean, Jesus himself said, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, then you'll gain it. He told us to pick up our cross, which is not like a woohoo, right? This is hard. And yet this is what the Christian life is like. But what often happens is that the food of the unpromised land seems more real and tangible than us actually trusting in the providence of our God. And so we'll chase after the food of the unpromised land rather than the intangibility, the hope, the faith of following our God and who he is. You track him? What sin often does is present us a very real, physical, in our face, in the moment, uh, 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 even a, a joy, even a momentary satisfaction And what God wants from us is actually so much deeper than that, but it's hard because it's not always tangible. He calls us into a life of faith of actually truly loving him and actually truly trusting him. And so the food then is what they're looking for, right? There's a famine in that land, which once again, just to put us in that context, like think about what that means at that time in that country. There was a famine in the land, right? I mean, shoot, we freak out over the Austin water boil crisis, right? I saw some of y'all on Instagram, right, boiling water, talking about the struggle is real, right? 
And so this is us. I literally was in a grocery store and a grandmother about pulled out a Glock 9 on a woman with a kid in her hand because she was trying to get some water. And it's like, okay, if this is how we freak out. Y'all like, for real? Yeah, for real. That actually happened. If this is how we respond to water, like think about what that means in that land at that time. If there's a famine, there's no food where uh, long-term storage and long-range transportation uh, is not an actual reality. This is a very, very trying season. And so you almost can't blame Elimelech for running and looking for food somewhere else. But rather than turning to God, he turns from God, and he runs to Moab, the road to nowhere. It's hard to trust God sometimes, and leaving him may actually give us temporary satisfaction. For we see they're not hungry anymore. They go to Moab, and you never hear about a famine or their hunger again. So they probably got what they were looking for. But in the process, they began to lose this intimacy with God. And though physical pleasures were just slightly taken care of, we'll see even here in a second, the physical reality was showing us a spiritual depth that was actually happening in them. The grass always seems greener. It always seems easier away from God, friends. Always. And sometimes it is. And so we have to ask, do we trust God? Or are we our own kings? Do we think that this world has enough to satisfy us? Or do we realize that we were made for another world? And this is what we're having to wrestle with. And so now Naomi and Elimelech and their sons are just kind of drifting in Moab, which was actually an enemy country of Israel. They have no sense of calling, no purpose, no direction. And here's where we go. Verse 3. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha. Somebody look at your neighbor and say Orpha, not Oprah, okay? And the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. This has gone from bad to worse. Now Naomi is without her husband in a foreign land, which was even hard in our own time, but that much more. And then in a patriarchal society where she would have been looked down upon because she's a woman, now she's in a foreign land with no husband and just two sons. In fact, then they go and they take Moabite wives, which shows that they don't trust God either. For the Moabites had already caused great trouble for the Israelites and led them to actually worshiping false gods in the book of Deuteronomy. And they would have known about this. And so they, just like their father, they run in those same patterns of sin. They have no regard for God's law or God's care. They do, like him, what is right in their own eyes. In fact, I think that word choice there is very interesting that they took wives. Almost every time you see the word took in the Bible, it's actually a very negative way. Notice it doesn't say they married Moabite women, but they took them. Kind of like how David took Bathsheba or how Eve took the fruit and ate. They took these wives. That shows, once again, the condition of their heart in rebellion against God. However, this did at least leave Naomi with a little bit of hope. Because if they can have some sons, then the family legacy can continue. And as she gets older, they can grow up and provide for her in a lot of ways. But this doesn't happen. In verse 5, it says, And both uh, Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman, woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Not only did her sons die, but if we saw in verse 3 and 4, they were actually married for 10 years and they didn't have any kids. And so not only was there a famine in the land, there was a famine of the womb as well. And the legacy was stopping in some ways. Now she is a foreign woman in a land that is male-dominant with only daughters-in-law in tow. Her situation has gone from tough to tragic to terrible. And that's what sin always does in our life. 
a temporary satisfaction did not leave her with an eternal reward, but rather left her more empty than when she walked into it in the first place. And that is often the promise of sin. Though it may satisfy us in a moment, it always leaves us more empty in the back end. And then it leaves us feeling shame and guilt for walking into it in the first place. For our enemy is a great deceiver. I love that he's even pictured as a snake. For the snake, the forks, uh, the forked tongue in a way, I believe in one ear he often uh, tells us, hey, do it, do it, do it, right? Temptation, temptation, temptation. And then we walk into that, and in the other ear he says, condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. You fool, you're so stupid. I can't believe you did that. And then temptation and condemnation and temptation, and this cycle goes down. And we either suppress it in such a way where we no longer feel any spiritual reality at all, or we feel deep shame and like we can't come to God in the first place. And this is what is happening here, even in their lives. Now, you got to believe that Naomi was probably angry at God, right? I mean, I probably would have been. In fact, in next week, we'll see in verse 20, she actually changes her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter. So she's mad at the Lord, right? It's like, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter, right? And Ruth somehow clings to her even more of her faith. But Naomi didn't realize that this was actually a result of her own sin, And this is what we often do too, friends. We end up in sin. We face the consequences of sin. Then we get mad at God at those consequences as if it wasn't us that led ourselves into that point in the first place. And this is what Naomi is doing, angry at God for the place that she's in. And instead of running back to God, now she runs from God and is bitter and rejects her own uh, consequences in a way. When things go from bad to worse, whether it is because of a famine that's just happening around us or it's a result of our own sin, we have to uh, begin to ask ourselves, do we get frustrated and angry with God? Is the disposition of our heart, where are you now, God? Huh? Is that the disposition of our hearts? I mean, gosh, I feel my heart do that. It is for me. My natural inclination is not to be like the hero Ruth in this story. It's to be like Elimelech and Naomi and go, God, where are you at? (laughs) Right? I'm serving you. Why am I suffering like this? I mean, y'all, even in the tiniest of ways, right? Like I walked outside this morning and I was like a little bit early and I was like, y'all, I'm about to go to Houndstooth and get myself a latte before I come up in here and be feeling all good, right? And I walked out and I had a flat tire and I was like, oh, right? (laughs) And it's so easy, right? And just that little bit, right? Like I'm not sitting here cussing out God at that moment, but I was like, come on, Lord, you couldn't wait till Monday to do this, right? (laughs) And I feel myself, if I can feel myself doing that with something as simple as a flat tire, what about when true suffering comes in my life? What's my disposition? What is our disposition? This is what we have to ask. And so rather than trying to seek a remedy from God, they run from God. And, and, they, and re, rather than going to God, they run from him. And they seek their own remedy in some way. It's easy like Adam and Eve to try to cover up our shame and our guilt when we find ourselves feeling a little bit far from God. And we try to hide in the bush. And rather than going toward him, we go away from him. And we see this in their lives. And so whether we right now are suffering because of our own sin and our own consequences, or maybe we're just suffering because the world around us is a broken place, friends. And maybe even this famine is a way of God trying to draw out our hearts. We have to ask ourselves, what is our disposition in the midst of this suffering? Suffering for us is a very, very hard to stomach because we often care more about our own physical lives than we do our spiritual souls. And this is what often traps us. 
And sometimes God may be using this physical suffering to work within you spiritual beauty, but we don't think about this or even desire it fully, and so we uh, detest God because of the physical suffering and ask, where is he in the midst of all of it? In fact, Matt Chandler, who is a pastor up in Dallas and the president of one of our associations, Acts 29, he says this, comfort is the God of our generation. So suffering is seen as a problem to be solved, not a providence from God. Shoot. This then often leads us, friends, into more and more bitterness, right? When our comfort gets taken away, we get mad at God. And what is that revealing about our faith? That it's a little bit more absent than we thought, that comfort is our God rather than God being our God. And this is what suffering does. And so whether it's because of our own sin and the consequence of our sin, or whether it's God's gracious providence to show us we're not as deep in him as we probably desire to be, suffering often exposes something so much deeper than what's happening in our hearts. In fact, I love what Tabidi Anyabwile said. He's a pastor and a blogger and an author. How our hearts should be towards suffering. He says, when suffering comes, say to it, hello, my dear friend. Produce in me the works God has designed for you to do and bring me into greater glory. I've prayed that prayer once in my life, and I regret it and never pray it again. <laughs> right? Like, that's just a hard prayer to pray because we don't believe that. We long for comfort in a lot of ways. And so, once again, sometimes we're suffering because of our sins. Sometimes we're just suffering because God is trying to bring an active agent to bring greater glory into our life. Sometimes he may be trying to reveal something about us. Man, sometimes you're even suffering so that you may be an evangelistic witness to the world around you. For when we suffer well and people realize that our hope is in something more than this physical world, but in the world that is to come, then it becomes a beautiful expression of the gospel that we believe in, but a lot of us don't suffer well. In fact, you even see Ruth next week. She is suffering well, and this begins to be a witness to all of Israel and to even her soon-to-be husband, Boaz, as he sees her suffering well. It stirs up uh, his heart for her, but gosh, it's hard to suffer well when our God is comfort in a lot of ways, but when we show the world that though our outer body may waste away, we have an eternal glory set before us, this becomes a witness that we're here for more than what this world can give us. In fact, we can be in a famine the rest of the days in our life, and we know we will eat forever with our King Jesus, and that's what we look for. And so this text shows us that the way of unfaithfulness to God continues to be the way of death. This book is littered with relationships, friends. It has uh, romance and, and dating and marriage. It even has the dreaded in-law relationships, right? Like this is all in this book. But the book starts off with the most important relationship, asking us the most important question, how is your relationship with God? Do you trust him? And for Elimelech and Naomi, the answer was no. They didn't trust God. And all these other relationships that are to come, and there's some beautiful relationships in here and a ton of practical uh, uh, implications for us in our life, in our singleness, in our marriages, in our even family, in our upbringing. There's all sorts of beauty in this, but this book littered with relationships asks us right away the most important relational question, do you trust God? Do you believe in him? Like for real believe? Depth in the heart where suffering cannot shake it in a very real way. And so verse 3 tells us that, man, Elimelech and his sons, they didn't. Naomi, they didn't. And they chose instead the path to nowhere. I love what Ian Duguide, he's a seminary professor and a commentator, says. He says, sometimes the biggest obstacle to returning home is our pride. 
We hate the thought of having to return to our homes and our families with our lives and tatters and having to admit that our previous choice was wrong. Somehow it seems easier to bear the pain of continued emptiness than to confess our pursuit of fullness was in the wrong place. Gosh, I feel that pride in my heart. And this is what this story is showing us. And so suffering is real. I know it. I see it. We get the prayer request every week, right? And I know a lot of us, we're not suffering because we're in direct sin. We're just suffering because the world around us is pressing us and and cutting us up with the thorns and thistles that happen because of the fall. But are we still trusting God and believing him? Even in the midst of that, what does suffering expose about who we are and where we are in our faith with God? Do we trust him or is comfort our idol? Suffering is trying to prove something within this in a lot of ways. And so I know this is a heavy topic, friends, right? Nobody's like, suffering, woohoo! Let's talk about this for the next 10 weeks, right? It's hard, I know it, but it's important because all of us are gonna go through it. And whether it's right now or in the future, it's gonna expose something about our hearts. And we have to ask, what is it bringing out? And whatever that is that is bringing out, are we going to then run to God, either in confession of our sin or coming back to him where true wholeness is had, or will we run from God? Will we drink from the river, right? Or will we go try to find another river, fearing the lion that's standing there that's actually going to protect us in the long run? And so you will not feel the weight of redemption in this book, friends, until you feel the weight of suffering that besets it. And you will often not feel the weight of redemption in your own lives until you feel the weight of suffering that comes because of the sin of this world and even of our own hearts. Jesus will not be as beautiful for you if you think you don't really need him that much. But the more we realize that we need him and the more we realize that the suffering of this world may be the result of our sin and the sin of everyone around us. And then when we realize that Jesus yet loves us still, that we can sing, oh, the never ending, right? Reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm fine. It leaves the 99. We are singing about a God who is after you no matter what. And when you feel the weight of suffering and the weight of our sin and the weight of the brokenness in our world, then you realize the weight of glory of our God that longs to bring you into the family of God and actually alleviate you from all suffering, friends. For here's the beautiful part of this whole text at large. See, Elimelech, he was running around trying to uh, find his own way and trying to make his own path in a lot of ways. We see that he was there for multiple years and God was patient with him. He didn't die, right? God was waiting for him to return. And then when he died, his sons, God was patient with them, waiting 10 years for them to come back to God, and yet they didn't either. And now Naomi is left, and God is still patient, and he's waiting for her to come back, and she does indeed come back. And she comes back with a foul attitude, right? And yet, and still, God still welcomes her home, for when we are like the prodigal son, he's not sitting waiting to condemn us, but he's making a feast for us that we can celebrate when we finally come back. And this is what we see happen even in Naomi's life. And so favor doesn't always feel like how you want it to feel like. But your suffering may be God's very tool that shows he actually has favor in your life. And he's trying to win your heart to himself. What often seems like the end of our lives can actually be the very beginning, as we so often hear in our baptism testimonies. What often feels like suffering can actually be God's providential hand turning your heart back to him and exposing what is really there so that he may place himself there, that which will truly satisfy, so that even if you're in the midst of the worst suffering that's ever existed, you have joy that literally cannot be expressed, the New Testament says, because of how much God dwells in you. That's what God longs to give you. 
not just food to for, for, uh, provide, to be satisfied for a moment, but food that lasts eternally, true comfort. And this is where we realize the even greater character that's hidden behind this story. For I love that the name of God is not explicitly mentioned, and yet we see God's providential hand working behind this. Ruth is a very normal story. There's no miracles, there's no resurrections, there's no healing, there's no voice of God speaking, and yet we see God acting in behind throughout all of it. And we have a hope that this suffering may be trying to point us to this God and that even in this suffering, we have a God that actually not only is with us, but has actually entered into it for us. Not only is our God present with us, but he has entered into it for us. You see, Elimelech left his home of Bethlehem to go chase the false promises of God only to end up dying in the end. Jesus left the home of heaven and entered into the famine of Bethlehem the true and greater bread of life. But Jesus purposely died for us in the end. See, Elimelech died because of his sin, and Jesus died because of our sin. And in a very real way, he helped us when we are in our Elimelech moments. He actually covered over us in a lot of way. God is for your comfort so much, friends, that he would be utterly discomforted on the cross so that you one day will be comforted forever. See, here's the beautiful truth, friends. Your desire for comfort is actually a good and godly desire. You just satisfy it in the wrong way. See, God longs for you to be comforted. For one day there will be no more tear, and there will be no more suffering, and that will be because our great king suffered for us. See, he entered into the suffering that we deserved. We all deserved, like Elimelech, to be dead and even that much more to face the consequences of our sin. And yet, Jesus Christ comes down in the form of a man and dies on the cross so that we may have life with him, so that the death that was deserved to us will no longer be cast over us. And even though this world may give us some temporary suffering, it promises it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that can never be put out. You will be forever comforted in the end if you believe in your God, friends. Do you trust this? Do you believe this? This is what our Jesus is showing us. Elimelech, he left his home because he didn't trust God and went to go build his own kingdom. Jesus left his home because he did trust God and he went to build your kingdom. He's building a place for you right now where moth and rust will not destroy and where you will be comforted forever. They sent themselves into exile and died in the end. Jesus also sent himself into exile, but he died for you in the end so that you will never be sent in exile from God. Do you trust God like this? Do you believe that he is good, that he is for you? Do you feel the weight of the suffering and maybe what is trying to expose in you? And maybe this is God's gracious gift to you to show you that what this world has to offer is trash compared to who he is. And there was one character we'll get to next week, Ruth, who actually believed that. And we'll see the physical blessing of God played out over her life. But even more deep friends, we'll see the eternal blessing of God. For you and I will meet this amazing woman one day if you believe in Jesus. And she prepared the way for our Messiah that would pay for us to never have to suffer one day. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I thank you that even when we are running away from home, running to the road to nowhere... You don't leave us, but you're waiting for us to return. But we have to choose to return. And so, God, I pray for those of us who may not know you, 
Or maybe we know we've been kind of in rebellion. We've been frustrated like Naomi. We've been purposely rejecting or we feel ourselves starting to slip down that path. God, would you begin to reveal to us how overwhelmingly affectionate you are toward us, how much you long for us to know you. Friends, you may be wrestling with Jesus and who he is. I want you to know that this God wants a deep relationship with you. He wants to satisfy your desire to not suffer. And he promised that he will. And even this suffering reveals that we believe in him or we don't. And so even right now, we can enter into that intimacy with Christ by saying, Jesus, I trust you. I trust what you have done for me. I believe in you. And we can enter into that unity with God. You can have a relationship today if you choose to trust him. It seems scandalous. It seems simple. It's because it is. He wanted to make the easiest way possible for you to know him. And yet, the hardest way, faith. And so God, I pray for those of us who are believers. Would we walk and maintain in you even in the midst of our suffering? God, I pray for every man and woman who has called you their God, you their king, you their Lord. Would they live like that? Would you forgive us when we are like Elimelech? Would you literally, Jesus, put your work inside of our heart that we may live out the works you have called us to? Would you forgive us where we stray? And would you keep every single man and woman in here that calls on your name? Would you sustain them to the end, God? I thank you that before we get into romance, before we get into uh, uh, intimacy and relationship and marriage, that we once again or ask the most important question, how are we with you? I pray the answer would be for us. We love you, and that despite our suffering, it is well with our souls. We pray this in your very beautiful name. Amen.